Hey friends, it's Pastor Dwayne at Cathedral of the Rockies. And as we enter into 2023, I'm gonna take you back to the 80s, Twisted Scripture, not Twisted Sister, Twisted Scripture. We're gonna jump in and say, what happens when the good book is used in a bad way? You've been there, I've been there, when someone's quoted Scripture to you and it felt not like a gift, but it felt like you were being beat up. Is that what Scripture's for? Join us through this month as we unpack the Scriptures together. Good morning, church. Welcome to all of our kids that are with us today. So when you're normally downstairs, this is what we do up here. All right, we gather together in this room, we sing some songs, we pray some prayers, and then the old guy with the beard gets up and talks. All right, and so we're gonna spit, we're in that part where the old guy talks. All right, just so you know. We're looking at how is it that we should read the scriptures? The Bible for all followers of Jesus should play a pretty fantastic role in, what, in our exploration of who God is. But how should we read the scriptures? What do we do with contradictions? What do we do with our friends who say, read it literally? What do we do? How do we read the scripture? Well, let's jump into it right away. We're gonna put a couple of texts up. We'll start with this first one from Malachi, from the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, uh, one of the prophets, Malachi. Read these few words with me. Let's read them together. I am the Lord and I do not change. All right, it's pretty, pretty clear. I'm God, I don't change. I'm ever the same. Now let's go a little further back. We'll go into, again, this time it's one of the prophets, maybe a greater prophet, Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah's words, chapter 43. Read with me. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I am God and I never change. I'm doing a new thing. How do we resolve some of the tensions that appear in the text? I mean, how shall we experience the scripture? What do we do with contradiction, challenging texts, the idea of literalism? What do we do with a God in the Hebrew text that often we would read today as immoral, wrong, even evil by almost any standard? You have some friends and so do I. There are some followers of Jesus that believe that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, meaning that the scriptures are simply just right as they are and can never be wrong. Really? How does a Wesleyan, how does a United Methodist follower of Jesus read the Bible? Well, within our foundational documents, John Wesley took the articles of religion that came out of the Church of England, and as he started this movement of Methodism, he said, here are the foundation stones, in a sense, the articles of religion for Methodists. This is article number five. Here's what it says about the scripture. The Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be pr proved thereby, is not required of anyone that they should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Now that's a lot of old English basically to say, here's a modern translation, the Bible contains all that's needed for life. It's in there. 
Now notice what it does not say in that article of faith. It does not say, it does not define inspiration. It does not make a claim that the Bible is without error or contradiction. It just implies whatever God thought we needed, it's already there. I kind of think of 2 Timothy in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he says this about the scripture. Every part of scripture is God-breathed, is useful in one way or another for showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live God's way. It's all in there. It can help us. Here's my definition of the scripture. The Bible is an invitation to explore the ever-expanding love, grace, mercy, justice, and forgiveness of God. It's one of the ways we get to know what God's like. Peter Enns is an author, and he wrote a book, How the Bible Actually Works, and he says this. The Bible was written by various writers who lived at different times, in different places, under different circumstances, and wrote for different purposes. Their writings demonstrate to us with blinding clarity that they were human beings like us, whose perceptions of God and their world were shaped by who they were and where and when they lived. Now, in the rabbinic, in in the Jewish tradition, one of the ways to think about the scripture is the scripture is like a diamond that you can hold up into the light. And you turn that diamond and as you turn it, it refracts, refracts the light differently and you see its beauty differently. So truth. Help me to understand today why this text is important. Rob Bell says this about this Bible. I've heard people say they read it literally as if that's the best way to understand the Bible. It's not. We read it literately. We read it according to the type of literature that it is. That's how you honor it. That's how you respect it. That's how you learn from it. That's how you enjoy it. In other words, if it's a poem, you read it like poetry. If it's a story, you read it like a story. If it's a letter, you read it like a letter. If it's a story that has what feels like exaggerated details when Samson kills exactly 1,000 Philistines or when Balaam's donkey starts talking to him, you might think that maybe the author's trying to make a different point and we shouldn't get so hung up on the details. How shall we read the scripture? Well, last week I gave you an assignment to look into the gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. It's not like the others, you know? One of these is not like the others. John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic. They're similar. They follow a similar rhythm and pattern as they tell the story of Jesus. John tells the story of Jesus, but he's got his own pattern and his own rhythm. If you read John, you recognized there's no birth story in John. No manger, no Joseph, no wise men, no shepherds. It's in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. It's poetry. John tells the story differently. We must remember the gospels are not biographies. They are really theologically driven documents. 
So don't approach the gospel as a modern person just wanting information. Approach them recognizing every author has a theological agenda. In the second century, there was a, 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 a theologian named Tatian. And Tatian was embarrassed by the differences between Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. He fought, felt like the church needed to get its act together and have one Jesus story. So he synthesized all four gospels and wrote one clear gospel, one story of Jesus. And he was trying to get the church to go, let's just have one gospel. But at the time, the Bishop of Lyon, Irenaeus at the time said, no, no, the church needs the four distinct voices. Each voice gives us a little bit different picture of who God is. Each voice remembers a little bit different part of the story. Each voice helps us experience God in a new way. And so yet today we have four distinct gospels. So we looked in John, and I want to focus just in chapter 2. In chapter 2, there's this wonderful story that begins this way. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, I like whenever there's a name of a town, I like to figure out, like, where, where is Jesus, right? Wedding in Cana of Galilee. So Galilee, we know we're, we're up north. We're, we're ahead of Jerusalem. We're north of Jerusalem. You're about six miles north of Nazareth. So Jesus lived in Nazareth. Now they've gone even further north, all right? They're up, up north. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding, says John. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they have no wine. What a great story. <laughs> John chapter 2. Jesus responds, Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. In the NIV, it says, why do you involve me, mother? In the RSV, it says, woman, what concern is that to you and me? Now, don't get hung up on his, his calling her woman. It, it, I mean, don't try that today. <laughs> I mean, if I said to Kathy, if she said, where do you want to go to lunch? And I said, woman, why do you ask me that? <laughs> I would be eating by myself. In Jesus' day, actually, it's respectful that he calls her woman. He's naming her reality and he's, he's, he's endeared to her, woman. So it's more like mother, all right? Hear it that way. So don't get hung up on that. But isn't it interesting? Why does John say this is really important? I mean, this is chapter two. Why does John say, I want you to know Jesus and I want you to know this story about Jesus. He went to a wedding. They ran out of wine. What's he telling us about Mary? Is he saying, look, you need to know Mary understood what it's like to be shamed. I mean, go back to her story in Luke. Go back to her story in Matthew. In Matthew, it says that Joseph had in mind to divorce her quietly, to try not to let too much shame come upon her when he found out she was having a baby that was not his. She, she stood in that moment knowing that the community might other her, might push her out, might, might throw her out physically. She knows shame. And she's at a wedding. And weddings in Jesus' day weren't a couple hours. They were usually two or three days. And early in the wedding, they run out of wine. Maybe it's a poor family. Maybe they're poor planners. Maybe the crowd's full of luscious, <laughs> and they drank a lot more than anybody ever expected. 
We don't know. We know that she recognizes othering is about to take place in the midst of a beautiful moment when a family's beginning, people are going to make fun of them, they're going to be disappointed in them, they're, they're going to shame them. And she says, they're out of wine. Wow. Jesus replies with an interesting line, my hour has not come. Now, if you stay, this is why it's important to read the text. If you would stay, if you'd keep studying John, you would find this phrase reoccurs, my hour, my time, depending on your translation. If you go a little further, you go to chapter seven, it says they tried to arrest Jesus, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not come. Okay, so we get it again. Go a little further, chapter eight, Jesus is teaching in the temple and they will not arrest him this time because his hour has not come. Go a little further, chapter 12, Jesus says, this hour has come, the hour has come for the son of man to begin to enter into his glory. So he recognizes it, it's, it's now. When he says my hour has come, it's the hour of, you might say, of his wedding. It's the begin, who's the bride of Christ? The church. It's the hour for him to enter into relationship with us. Verse four, Jesus says to him, is it any of our business, mother, yours or mine? It's not my time, don't push me. I often wonder, what, what is Jesus thinking about when his mom says, do something? They're out of wine. Do something. I mean, when you're at a wedding and you're a young adult, he's early maybe 28, maybe 30. When you're single at a wedding, what do you think of? I hope they have an open bar. That's one thing. <laughs> but usually you're thinking, I wonder if I'll ever get married. I mean, that's usually what's on our mind. We've, we're at a friend's wedding and we're wondering, I wonder if I'll ever do that. And he might be thinking, I wonder if I'll ever do that because my dad who would have arranged the wedding has gone. So it's harder. I wonder if anyone will set me up. I wonder if I will ever, he might be thinking, when does my time come when I have to do this work? I think Jesus is thinking about us, the beloved. Chapter two, verse five, I love how his mother reacts. His mother said to the servants, look, she doesn't even wait for his reaction. What does it have to do with me? She just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby, John writes, there were six stone jars the kind used by Jews, by followers of God for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So, okay, let's do the math. Six stone jars times 20. So 120 gallons of water. If we take the higher route, right? Uh, six stone jars times 30, 180 gallons of water. This is abundance. I mean, think of the crowd that would drink 180 gallons. I would hope it's a big crowd, right? Why is John, what is John trying to say to us as he talks to us about Jesus? Is he saying God is a God who doesn't want you to experience shame? Is he saying God is a God not of scarcity, but of, of abundance? Abundance in a way you can't even imagine? And then I love that Jesus finally answers his mother and starts to engage the others. I mean, she pushes him. And the story kind of reminds us that each day we are invited, we are invited to participate in the work of God. The world will push us, 
So Jesus says, fill up the jars with water. <clears throat> they fill them up to the brim. He says, draw some water out, take it to the head waiter. You might know the story. The head waiter tastes the water, now wine. As he tasted, he calls the bridegroom and he goes, friend, everybody starts with a good wine first. And then when people are a little lighter on their feet, they bring out the cheap stuff. But you, you save the good stuff for the end. And then John gives us this line, which is fascinating. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign that through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now think about this. You're writing a story about the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the, the presence of God. And the first sign isn't a healing story. The first sign isn't walking on the water. The first sign isn't feeding 5,000 people with two loaves and fish. John says the first sign is water turned to wine. That God's a God that wants you to celebrate. That God's a God that wants you to know there's abundance. That God's a God that wants you to know there's no shame. That God's a God that stands up for you when others would shame you and says, I won't let that happen. this sign, it invites us to live differently. And on a day when we remember Dr. Martin Luther King, when we remember Dr. King's words to us that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, maybe we need to hear Mary say, do something. Mary said, do something to Jesus. And he invited others to participate. Get the jars, fill them with water. Notice he's, he, he involves others in the miracle. I would tell you today, the world cries out, do something. And most days like Jesus, we go, why are you bothering me? <laughs> it's not my time. The world cries out, do something. There's trouble at the border do something, national movements have normalized racism, do something, global warming is challenging our world, do something, people are hungry in the city of Boise, do something, the 50-year-old experiment called the United Methodist Church is in chaos, do something, Op opioids and addictions are killing our loved ones, do something. Sexism, racism, classism, anti-Semitism have become normal. The wine has run out. Do something. Jeff France writes this in his book about the Bible. He says, the Bible should be read and understood from a big picture perspective, from a vantage point of the whole. We must never simply reduce the Bible to one verse, one chapter, or even one book. For the Bible to breathe freely and to continue to inspire, it must be liberated from the burden and flaws of inerrancy and literalism. So, you know, there's more homework coming, right? So here's the homework. If we're going to learn to how to read the Bible, we have to read the Bible. So this week, I invite you to discover in the Hebrew side of the Bible, in the Old Testament side, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, great story. You learned it as a kid, perhaps. The book of Jonah, a story you can read with your kids. Um, you might, after we talk about next week, wonder why do we read that with our kids? But we're going to look at the book of Jonah. 
And then you can ask the question, who is, who is God in this story? What's it say about God? What's it say about God's people? And is there anything in the story that God's asking me to do, to be, or to become? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you gave us different versions of the Jesus story. Thank you that you have inspired different authors to help us hear what it means to be people of God. We hear the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. God, we remember that he wrote those words from the Birmingham jail. And he wrote them mainly to people like us, to white Christians who said, slow down, you're, you're, you're too radical, take time. And he wrote to us to call us to stand against injustice. God, give us courage to live our faith like that, even in these times, in our schools, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, even in our churches, give courage to live like that. It's in the name of Jesus the Christ we pray. Amen.